Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which was rather extensive and continually being updated. Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. No, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. I am delighted to welcome to The Enemies List today... Two authors and thinkers about American democracy who I think you're going to find very valuable. Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, uh, authors of Tyranny of the Minority, have been ringing the bell loudest uh, among many folks who've warned about the fragility and the dangers American democracy faces today. I'm I'm absolutely thrilled to have them on the program. We're going to get into the discussion right now. Uh, Stephen, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today on the Enemies List. Thanks for having us, Ruth. Yeah, great to be with you. So let's start out with the recognition that I think a lot of Americans since the Trump era and since January 6th in particular have suddenly become aware that our democracy may not be as robust and resilient and impervious to the sort of cracks in it that are showing uh, than they than they were before. Talk to me about where you both see the state of American democracy, the state of our republic in this moment, because I think we're about to go through a big stress test in 2024 that will make 2020 and 2021 look like a warm-up exercise. It may. I mean, I think uh, it's obviously very important that Donald Trump was defeated and eventually removed from power in 2020. I don't want to understate the importance of that. We would be in much worse shape had he managed uh, either legally or illegally to hang on to power. So uh, the 2020 election and the turnover of power was extremely important. That said, I think a lot of us, a lot of Americans kind of breathed a, a sigh of relief after 2020, 2021 and, and kind of wanted to turn the page. And the, the fundamental problems that gave rise to Trump, that gave rise to 2020 and 2021, are still there. A, a radicalized Republican Party that continues, that, that no longer fully embraces the rules, uh, democratic rules of the game, uh, and a set of institutions that are protecting uh, and encouraging that radicalization. And so until we get to the underlying problems of, of a radicalized Republican Party and, and institutions that empower it, um, we're going to continue to face crises, as you, as you said, Rick. I think folks underestimate there was a part of the Republican Party in 2015, 16, and maybe 17. And I used to talk to these people a lot. A lot of them were my former clients and friends. And it was this belief that somehow there would be some normative forces in the Republican world that would constrain Trump's behavior, that would dial him back, that would pull him back from the from the brink. Um, and... And those were all complete 
delusions. Those were that was magical thinking. Talk to us a little bit about how all the sort of guardrails have disappeared from what was a party that once was dedicated to limited government and individual responsibility, and has transformed itself into sort of the the cheering section for uh, a wannabe authoritarian. Yeah, so I, I would say, I mean, there's a couple of things going on here. I mean, one. There's with all political parties. There's multiple strands within it. I mean, within the Republican Party, there has has always been, uh, you know, and especially before 2016. And if you think of the presidential primary process and Republican presidential primary process, there was always a kind of extremist fringe. But you know, when it came time, to, you know, to choose the candidate for office, these forces were generally sidelined. I mean, what happened in 2016 was that that seemed to no longer be possible. Um, and you know, we, in our previous book, How Democracies Die, we just we we described this process of kind of failed gatekeeping, where where political leaders thought that they could kind of ride the tiger and stay in charge of it, but very quickly lost control of it. Um, and you know, so so that that was a critical kind of feature of trying to understand what happened in 2016. And so, just as there are extremist forces in every democracy around the world. Um, there are there have always been, and you know, and even in the Democratic Party, if you think back to the kind of Jim Crow era as well. But you know, in the Republican Party before 2016, this, these forces were there, but the party lost, party leaders lost control, and that's what makes the U.S. different from a lot of other democracies. Is that you know these fringe elements are in charge of one of our major parties, and it's and it's hard, as Steve was saying, to to maintain a democracy uh, when you have one political party, um, only one political party, committed to the rules of the game. So increasingly, we see that this is that the party has the party leadership has has you know as such as it exists has lost control, doesn't really exist anymore. And so one of the questions I guess we puzzle through a lot is why isn't, you know, political politicians want to win re-election. They, you know, they, they lost the popular vote in 2016. They lost the popular vote and the presidency in 2020. And normally there's a kind of self-correcting um, logic to, to electoral competition. And you, I mean, that's the genius of democracy. That's the supposed genius of the American political system is that you lose, you regroup, you put up a new front, you come up with a new set of ideas. And what we're puzzling through is why isn't that happening? Why isn't that happening to the Republican Party when, you know, increasingly it's clear the Republican Party, you know, you know, you know, lost this whole series of elections during the Trump era, you know, regained the House in 2022, but, you know, in that sort of disappointing fashion. And so what we are trying to pu- is puzzle that through, and we, we think part of the explanation is that our institutions are set up in such a way that it's possible to win uh, power without winning majorities. And when that's the case, yeah, when that's the case, you then uh, you don't need you don't try to win majorities, and so you don't moderate to the same degree. So, it's, so this is in some sense the, the kind of one of the central theses of our book that we can elaborate. I do want to talk about that because in about thirty states in the country where Republican and there are some Republican states that are just Republican states. They are the demographics, the population, the culture. They're just hard red states. But there are about 27 to 30 of these states where they should be a lot more balanced than they are electorally. So talk to us a little bit about why the incentives of of Republican control of these states, including redistricting, judicial selections, a use of executive power, et cetera. I'm right in thinking that those states have this sort of negative incentive structure to open up and be more small d democratic because they are holding on to power structurally, not electorally, if that makes any sense. I think there are more than one thing going on. The activism, the the sort of beating heart of the Republican Party, certainly the activist base is is quite Trumpist, certainly ever since the, the rise of the Tea Party. 
the people who fill the meetings, the people who who pressure our local state politicians tend to be pretty Trumpist. So um, that pull exists as well from below. But, you know, it's a lot easier to hang on to power through what you call sort of structural mechanisms rather than building broad coalitions. If, as Daniel said, if you don't have to go out and win popular majorities and there's, there's, a, there's a shortcut or there's an easier route, you're going to do it. And uh, for now, I mean, this, this may be very destructive in the longer term, but for now, uh, Republican leaders, whether it's in Wisconsin or in the U.S. Senate or at the, at the national level, are kind of taking the easier route. Yeah, I mean, I can I can say this from some experience on on my part, particularly in the state of Florida, where I've done politics my whole adult life. The plan to take over what was a blue state became a purple state and transform it into a red state has never depended on getting a majority of the voters to f- follow along. It has been dependent on building the structures of money. Political capacity and 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 you know operational political capacity at redistricting, which has been you know one of the greatest success stories of the Republican Party in nationally in terms of of corroding fair elections. It's rarely been about persuasion. It's rarely been about drawing people into a set of ideas or ideals. Is one of the big incentive structures here? I mean, look, the Republican Party used to be comprised of the the, the traditional three three legs of the stool: individual liberty, you know, free market conservatives, social conservatives, and foreign policy conservatives. And now it seems to be comprised of of a sort of nihilist caucus of people who want to burn down systems, norms, institutions. Uh, money people who, you know, basically only are there for the tax cuts and, and social conservatives are still sort of playing a, a key role there. How does a movement like that sustain itself over time without going down this path of sort of authoritarian abuses? You just answer the question. I mean, they can't, I mean, that is the only way to go if you are going to have this agenda, this, this, this three-legged stool that can't win majorities. I mean, the only way to win power is to take, is to either construct or, or leverage existing institutions that can, that can, you know, propel yourself into power. I mean, we come to this partly, both Steve and I, you know, we spent our career studying other democracies in other parts of the world. You know, I spent a lot of time studying German conservatives in the 19th century. You know, who are these, you know, aristocrats, the East Prussian Junkers who are, you know, really opposed to democracy. But the thing, you know, there was a kind of famous slogan, actually, that the German Conservative Party used at the time because they, you know, this aristocratic party can never win majorities, but they controlled the political system. And so at one point they had this slogan, we don't want to be a, we want to be a small but powerful party. We want to be a small but powerful party. The only way you can be a small but powerful party is if you are working in an authoritarian system. You know, so this is something that has happened before in history. That part, that political parties again, they're interested. You know, people want to gain power, and so you use the institutions that are around you. Um, and at the national level, at least, uh, it's very easy to win national. You know, win the presidency without winning popular majorities. You can control the Senate without winning popular majorities. And then also, I mean, as you're describing at the state level, you know, this may be a little more difficult. But it's not. You know, I think that this is also happening at the state level through you know gerrymandering and you know to take Wisconsin, where the Republican Party is able to have super majorities of the seats in the state legislature without winning super majorities in the in the public uh, in any statewide office. They really have struggled. They struggled to win majorities. And so these institutions are the things, are the crutches upon which they rely. And then this this kind of has this feedback effect where where this reinforces the most 
extremist forces in the party. So that, that's, again, why we come back to these the, it, it, kind of institutional diagnosis of what's gone wrong. And until we address that, we're going to be facing this kind of this, this unholy amalgam that you just described. I'm a registered Democrat, which would probably not shock you. I will sleep better at night and will feel more secure about the health of our democracy when we get to a place where the Republican Party can beat the crap out of the Democrats at the national level, where the Republicans can win way over 50 percent and get back to a place where they were winning national majorities. At that point, I think the party will become much, much, much more moderate and much more willing to play by Democratic rules. It would have to be. And I will say there was a vision of the Republican Party, whether you agree or disagree with that. There was a period of time after 2008 and after 2012 where a lot of Republicans, I was one of them, was like, okay, guys, we can't keep doing this. The number of white voters is going to keep declining. The number of non-high school graduates or or, or non-college graduates is going to keep declining. The demographics are going to catch up and kill this party. And we've got to reform and change and, and, and operate differently. And it, of course, we were on the wrong side of political history by thinking that. And, you know, my, my friend Sally uh, Bradshaw helped run the the, the famous, uh, you know, autopsy. My, my friend Tim Miller was part of that. I mean, all of us were contributing this to this set of ideas that the party – and look, before 9-11, George Bush wanted to do education reform and encourage homeownership across the country. That was not where the GOP ended up. And and I, and the, the collapse of faith in institutions has been – both organic and engineered. And that's where that party is now because they don't want to reform. They don't want to broaden. They believe in this almost like blood and soil white America that is a powerful cultural hook. It really is. I'm not going to deny its power among among a lot of Americans, but it's not just working class Americans. It's, it's a lot of white guys who've been told by Fox News every day, you're the oppressed one. You're you're the one who's really got it hard in this country. You know, you're you're the one who's behind the eight ball because of the elites. When you look at collapses of democracies, where would you say we are on that spectrum right now? We're a strange case in, in that U.S. has a lot of things going for it. U.S. democracy is not easy to kill. And so I, I think it's still very unlikely that we consolidate a, an autocracy of the kind that we see, say, in Russia or even in, in, in Hungary, because the opposition forces, the small D Democratic forces led by but not, ex, not, not limited to the Democratic Party, are, are quite strong. They're well financed, they're well organized, they have a lot of strength in the media, and we also continue to have some very strong Institutions, a still independent judiciary, federalism, uh, uh, a strong legal system. So what, what I think we are headed into and we've already headed into and you and you uh, you hinted at this as well, Rick, is a period of very rough waters of instability, of sliding in and out of crisis. Uh, there may be short periods of, 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 of authoritarian rule. There, there may be some uh, violence. So th- this could be a very ugly period, but I, I think it's unlikely that we would consolidate into a an autocracy. And that's where the United States is a little bit different from, say, Spain or Chile and uh, or Germany and Italy, other regimes that we talked about that really collapse into full-scale authoritarian rule. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, and sometimes people misunderstand St- uh, Steve's uh, diagnosis as, as like optimistic or good news. You know, we're not going to lo- look like Russia. We're not going to look like Hungary. But, you know, this this is a disaster. I mean, this let's be really clear about what this means. I mean, you know, f- first of all, that the massive social instability, violence that we're, I think, already seeing. I mean, there's sort of no reason to think it's going to end anytime soon. Uh, what this means for our politics and our ability to address public policy problems. I mean, you know, let's imagine, you know, trying to deal with gun control or deal with, you know, climate change or deal with, you know, any of the major pressing issues. You pick your issue. You know, if you look at the the House of Representatives today, you know, this is it. I mean, this is we're in it. I mean, this is we have complete inability to function. And, you know, you know, there'll be moments, you know, like I think President Biden came in and was able to get some stuff done. And so there'll be moments of kind of success, but there'll be moments of crisis, you know, in the next Supreme Court nomination process is going to be a disaster, you know, these. And so this kind of instability and sort of sense that we're always right on the verge of crisis. I mean, that feeling that we all have of looking forward to the 2024 election and thinking, my God, what can go wrong? You know, that that takes it that that takes a toll on a democracy and that takes a toll on a society. And, you know, it's not the kind of society that I think any of us want to live in. It's not the kind of democracy that we imagine that we all deserve. And so that's you know, we need to really take that seriously. It's not it's not a good it's not a rosy picture at all. William Gibson once said the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. I think sort of the collapse of democracy is is not just evenly distributed yet. It, there are places where it's much more imperiled than others. The place I think it's going to be the most imperiled, if, if you do have Trump in office again, uh, because you know, Steve Bannon says he's a Leninist and they've got a game plan to dismantle every institution of government that they possibly can. They want to break it as thoroughly as they can, eliminate any kind of civil service, eliminate any kind of of independence from the central authority, which you know, is one of those hallmarks of authoritarianism is that is that the dear leader runs everything. I, I won't go so far as to say it's the uh, sort of a North Korean model, but it is a very centralized Soviet style model almost where you would have concentration of power among a very limited number of of, of individuals. Not to put the, the world in too too dark of a of a light. How do you think America can strengthen its democracy? How do you think we can we can sort of rebuild some of our resilience and and refocus on preserving some of the things that make us one of the oldest and best functioning democracies in the world, although it may not always feel that way. Well, we uh, lay out 15 proposals in the final chapter of our book that are aimed at effectively democratizing our democracy. And before jumping into them, let me just make a, a broader point, which is that the era that we've all grown up in the last 50 years has been an era of almost total non-reform where uh, the, even the idea of constitutional change, constitutional amendment has kind of been considered ridiculous, it's been off the table. But that's actually not true for most of, of U.S. history. From the very beginning, from the, from the time our Constitution was written, American leaders and activists have been discussing, debating, proposing, pushing, finding ways to make our political system more democratic, make it better. Uh, began with the Bill of Rights, continued with the Reconstruction reforms, with the expansion of suffrage, with the Progressive Era reforms, the, the reform where we began to uh, the, the amendment that allowed us to directly elect our senators rather than have them indirectly elected. For most of our history, we have been gradually pushing to make our system more democratic. And we've stopped doing that. We stopped doing that work in the last half century. And so what we are 
calling for it. And democracies need to do that. They need to update. Uh, sometimes they learn from other democracies. Sometimes they change uh, it to, to adapt to, to, to changes in society, changes in the world. So we've got a very good constitution, a constitution that has served us well, a constitution that should obviously remain in place, but that could be amended to make our system more democratic. And so, for example, we call for elimination of the Electoral College. We are the only presidential democracy on earth where the loser of a presidential election can become president. That's a real problem. We also call for uh, a set of reforms that are not constitutional, but that involve some you know, important changes in our political system, the elimination of the filibuster. For very, no other established democracy has a super majority rule for passing regular legislation, right? A, ma- a majority in the legislature should pass regular legislation. And we, we also call for a set of reforms making it easier to vote. Most democracies, voting is, is, a, is a core part of modern democracy. Most democracies, in most democracies, the government thinks it's a good idea that people vote and takes a number of steps to facilitate voting. So people automatically become registered where they're 18. Some countries make it mandatory to vote. It's seen as a civic obligation. But elsewhere, it's people are, are registered when uh, when they turn 18. Vote. Uh, they, people vote on a Sunday or a national holiday. It's made easy to vote. And so the idea that it's actually that there are obstacles to voting, that it's hard to vote, is um, it's just antithetical to democracy in our view. So we call for a set of reforms making it easier to um, to vote. That, that's a few. There are more. Yeah, I, just, I was just going to say, I mean, a couple of things about this. You know, one, like, you know, your listeners might be listening. Oh, this sounds really radical. This is impossible. Isn't this scary to dismantle these institutions we've come to rely on? And one of the points, you know, when we look at other countries around the world that, you know, often there's great fear of institutional reform. You know, but, you know, when, when countries got rid of the Electoral College in other places or, let's say, eliminated upper chambers, I mean, that's not something we're at all calling for. Uh, you know, people, you know, sort of thought, well, this, you know, this is going to bring our system to an end. And often, you know, it was sort of a big, you know, nothing happened afterwards. I mean, you know, the democracies only became stronger. I mean, so some of these things that we've grown accustomed to, you know, obviously a lot of our institutions are worth preserving and defending, but there are some things that can be changed and, you know, and the world may continue to go on and actually work better. And so, I mean, Steve made the point, this makes our system more democratic. I would say there's also two other payoffs to kind of engaging in this kind of thinking and and sort of pushing, beginning to discuss these kinds of reforms. Uh, Number one, you know, there's a great disaffection. And there's a sense that our political system is frozen. We can't get anything done. And I think the idea, you know, the idea that we can change our own system, that we can make our system work better, in many ways, I think, can reinvigorate our democracy. I mean, give, give a greater sense of vitality to our democracy. And then the second point is that this, the, that these reforms, we think, also have the potential to help uh transform the Republican Party. I mean, we've just been describing how all of these crutches are things that prevent, that exist in the current system are the things that are contributing to the radicalization of the Republican Party. And so we're interested in these reforms, not because it helps one party or another, but because it'll, it introduces a kind of fairness to uh, political competition that I think at the end of the day will give rise to two parties that have to win majorities. And if they have to win majorities, they will have to moderate and our political system will just simply work uh, more effectively. As much as I've been in the the odd position the last few years of supporting a Democratic president, I think Joe Biden's been a, a a fine president given the circumstances. You know, I do think the country needs a center right party. I, I would love a party 
driven by that, you know, Berkey and fierce love of liberty and all those things that I once as a Republican believed in the individual liberty and free markets and rule of law and constitutional adherence. I think all those things could and should be present in our politics. But right now there's a party that's driven by racial animus and, you know, a, a, an obsession with power that is not just unseemly, but I think in defiance of the best examples America has set over the years when we've done the right thing, the, the, the peaceful transition of power was one of our fundamental things. We'd never crossed that red line until 2021. And I, I still go back and I look at that moment as, as we were very much teetering on the precipice that day. My question is, in a sort of long-winded way, are you more worried about a slow corrosion of rights, liberties, norms, institutions, or a sudden shock. Because I, I and I've, I've made this case before, it's sort of you know counterfactual, but if the mob had found Mitt Romney that day, or Nancy Pelosi, or Mitch McConnell, or anyone who wasn't a hard Trumper and killed them, my, I honestly believe that the country would have basically, I think we would have basically collapsed as a nation. I think we would have ended up with Trump being able to engineer holding office. I think there were a bunch of Republican senators who were playing wait and see that day. And I, so, so my question is, are you worried more about the slow erosion and corrosive nature of, of the anti-democratic movement? Or do you worry about, I, I hate even using the word coup, but some sort of shocking event, some sort of inflection point where, where violence and political chaos breaks us more fundamentally? First of all, let me just uh, point out that one of us in this room wrote an award-winning book about how democracies need strong center-right parties. This is There's a lot of political science research showing that democracies are healthier when, when they have a strong center-right party. So your intuition, Rick, I think is right on. Daniel may have a slightly different view. I'm, I'm considerably more concerned about the slow erosion of of democracy in part because as we've seen over the last decade we can allow the, the the slow erosion occurs and it it does not trigger enough concern among our political elites to act and i'm thinking particularly about mainstream republican politicians many of whom you you know rick many of, of whom you talk to who in private are pretty concerned but have not reach the line where they're willing to act. And that's, it's, I, you know, I don't want to go back to the frog in boiling water metaphor, but there, this, it, it's true, that it, it, but it's a good one. And I just think it's more likely because, again, opposition forces in the United States are are very strong. It's, um, I actually think that that if, you know, God forbid, somebody like Romney or Pelosi had been killed on, on January 6th, it might have had the opposite effect. It might have actually had the, the, uh, it might have triggered something in in Republicans to maybe they would have freaking convicted Trump uh, in the Senate, which is would have made a big difference. Right. We're already in the middle of that slow erosion. Uh, not only are our norms badly weakened, not only are institutions starting to come undone, not only are things that used to be considered unthinkable now thinkable. But as Daniel pointed out, Americans are watching especially younger Americans, are watching and saying, you know, what good is this system? And Americans are gradually losing, polls show this, losing faith in the system. And so eventually 
that gradual erosion, that poor performance of our democracy, people losing faith, people thinking this system isn't even democratic, um, may put us in a position decades down the road where we suffer a, uh, a more of a coup-like event. I don't think that is really probable today. I guess I think of the two as being very closely related. I mean, this reminds me of the the line from the sun also rises. The sun also rises, where you know the characters ask, "How did you go bankrupt?" And says, "Gradually, then suddenly." So I think that the, the two are very much linked. I mean, the final the final scene may look like a sudden collapse, but it's preceded by lots of gradual erosion. And it's and it's you know it's more than just norms being violated. I mean, you know, the, these or, international organizations, organizations like Freedom House, varieties of democracy, you know, score give democracy scores, and that's part of the thing that motivated us writing this book. We begin our book with this kind. A paradox that the U.S., which is a rich democracy, is an old democracy. Uh, you know, however you code the earliest days of American democracy, it's an old democracy. And usually, these kinds of democracies don't get into trouble. And what's so shocking is that, according to these international organizations, the U.S. has experienced democratic backslide between 2016 and 2020. And so, it whereas before before 2016, we were on par in all of these international indices, along with you know Canada, Germany, Britain. By 2020, we were uh, below Argentina. Um, you know, we are below a lot of new democracies. Do we don't know? And and the reason this this the Freedom House was scoring us in these ways was you know we have a situation where you have election officials being threatened, uh, uh, and you have you know an attempted. Uh, halt to the transfer of power. You have assaults on voting rights. I mean, these are very specific things taking place in the U.S. that are an indication that democracy is really under siege. And so, the, and this is happening gradually. And so, you know, we have to, it's not just a matter of speculation that this might come in the future. I mean, it's, we're witnessing it right now. And I mean, the game is not up, but we have to recognize that, 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 that the threat is, is current with us in the moment. Right. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you both for joining me today. Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt are the authors of The Tyranny of the Minority and How Democracies Die. They are two, uh, again, of the of the sharpest observers of our current crisis. And I appreciate both of you coming on the show today. Thank you so very much for being here. Thanks for inviting us, Rick. Hey, tell people where they can find you on social media. I'm on Twitter, D Ziblatt. That's my D-Z-I-B-L-A-T-T. Yeah, I'm pretty non-existent on social media. <laughs> you were a wise man, Stephen. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, guys. Appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. Well, today on the enemies list, it is the 21st of September. And Vladimir Zelensky, one of the most heroic figures, one of the most inspirational leaders of modern times, uh, gave a banger of a speech uh, yesterday at the UN, arguing against Russia's continued war crimes, abuses, etc. And today he's in Washington. He'll be meeting with the president, but he will also be meeting with Kevin McCarthy. Interestingly, Kevin McCarthy, who is a frequent guest on the enemies list, oh, I'm sorry, a frequent member of the actual list of the enemies, Kevin McCarthy won't allow him to address Congress. He's trying to keep him in the back, trying to hide him out. And why is this? It's because Kevin McCarthy has a lot of people in his caucus who are pro-Putin, who are pro-Russia, who do not want to see Ukraine win against the country that invaded them, do not want Ukraine to win against the country of Russia that bombs hospitals and orphanages and schools and civilian areas, that uses the fifth column of American leaders who are pro-Russia and pro-Putin effectively 
uh, to try to block aid and block help for Ukraine. So this is Kevin one more time showing us that he is the worst moral coward to ever hold the seat of speaker, that he is the worst speaker in modern history, and that he is afraid to lead, that he is afraid um, that he can't confront the hyper MAGA caucus and he can't confront them in a way that he knows is morally correct, that he knows is politically right, that he knows is the right thing to do because he's afraid of losing his gig. He wants the portrait. He wants the security detail. He wants the fancy office. He doesn't care about freedom in this world. He doesn't care about security in this world. He doesn't care about a war being waged by an enemy of this country against an ally of this country. And that's that. And that's why, Kevin, as always, you dumb shit, you're on the enemies list. Thanks again for listening to the enemies list. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.